Well, in recent years, our family has become accustomed to grocery pickup. This convenience is, is well-timed for our family as now we have multiple toddlers and, and now we don't have to drag our kids through the, the grocery aisles as they throw their tantrums asking for candy or wanting to see the toys. I, I love grocery pickup because our kids stay in their car seats the entire time. And also grocery pickup saves me a lot of time. I don't have to wander up and down the aisles looking for paprika. And best of all, most of this can be done from the comforts of home. I love grocery pickup. Where has this been all our lives? Well, most of us have become to these kinds of conveniences. And we might have a temptation to apply these conveniences even to our participation in church. Is there a way where we don't have to deal with the tantrums of our brothers and sisters? Is there a way that we can save ourselves time by not getting bogged down with all their problems? Is there a way that we can receive all the benefits that come from being a part of a church without having to leave our home? Such temptations tug at each of us and pull us away, perhaps, from being engaged into the lives of our, our brothers and sisters who we are with this morning. And it might seem like I'm preaching to the choir here. It's not like we're forsaking the gathering this morning. It's not like those of us who are here are probably engaged in online church elsewhere. But nonetheless, we need to see ourselves and the temptations that are tugging us away from being deeply engaged into the lives of our brothers and sisters. We might we might be regular attenders. We might even be known by name around here. But, but are you actually known? And do people actually know you? And are you engaged in the one another's that are a key component to the Christian life? Understand, Christianity, it is not merely about sermons and songs. The Christian life is a community effort. The scriptures are full of these commands that we call the one another's. Commands like welcome one another, encourage one another, be kind to one another, serve one another, teach and admonish one another, forgive one another, bear with one another. On and on we can go. The one another's of the Christian life are most often not convenient. But this is the life that we are called to. And chief over all the one another's is found in our text this morning in verse 22. Peter calls us, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. There it is. That's the command that we come to this morning. We are called to love one another. Let's get the context right. Where does this command come to us from? Well, Peter, he's writing to Christians who are in exile. And after having reminded them and us, consequently, of the truths, the gospel truths in verse 3 through 12, Peter has shifted now to gospel behaviors, starting at verse 13. In verse 13, he called us to set our hope on future grace. In verse 15, Peter called us to be holy as God is holy. And last week in verse 17, we heard him call us to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. And you'll notice that all of those commands, they had a, a vertical dimension, how we relate towards God. 
But here in verse 22, Peter comes to a shift now in these gospel behaviors. He shifts from the, the Godward vertical focus to now a horizontal focus to how we relate to one another. And his focus isn't just about people in the general sense. There's going to come a time where he talks about how we're to relate to people outside of the church. But for now, the focus is on our relation to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. He calls us to, to love one another. And you see it even in verse 22. There's this brotherly love, a sincere brotherly love. This is Christians loving one another. So understand the command. It's very simple in one sense. It's, it's to love one another. And this seems simple enough. And yet all at once, it's not simple at all. For one, many of us don't actually understand what it looks like to love the way the Lord is calling us to love. Some of us only know how to love the way the world loves. To be sure, the world does know something about love. But the love that the Lord calls us to have for one another is not known by the world. It is not practiced by the world. And so we need to have a renewed mind so we can understand rightly what we're being called to do as we're called to love one another. So that's one complexity of this command. But, but the other complexity is this. We're sinners. And we are not good at loving one another our problem isn't simply with a misunderstanding of what it means to love. Our problem is that apart from God, it is impossible for any of us to love the way that we are called to love. The kind of love that the Lord calls us to, it is not possible for the natural man. What is natural to us, apart from Christ, is to love ourselves and to hate our enemies and even hate one another, even our own brothers, the way Cain murdered Abel. Apart from God, we cannot do the command that is set here before us. And yet, for us who are in Christ, this command is, is possible. And we're still growing up in salvation. We're still being sanctified. It's not possible for us to do this perfectly. But nonetheless, the call for us is possible. But first, let us rightly understand what it means to love one another so we don't get confused and think that the love that we're called to is the same love that the world practices. Listen to the marks of love that Peter sets before us. He calls us in verse 22 to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. These two aspects of our love need to be understood rightly if we're to rightly love one another. We need to understand what it means to love earnestly and we need to understand what it means to love from a pure heart. So let's consider each of these one at a time. First, we are called to love one another earnestly. Earnest simply means to be constant in it, to be in a constant effort towards something. We can be earnest about all kinds of things. You read in the book of Acts that the, the church was earnest in prayer. That is, they were constant in prayer for Peter when he was in prison. The NASB translates this passage that, that we are to be fervent in love for one another. So to earnestly love one another, to fervently love one another, means that we are zealous about this thing. We are zealous in our love for one another. What might this look like in practice? Well, it's not native to, to any of us, but there is something that is native to, to many people. And it might help us get a better picture of what it looks like to be earnest and zealous in this love. Consider for a moment 
the lover of money. The lover of money is an earnest lover, isn't he? Lovers of money make terrible models to imitate, to be clear. Lovers of money, they do not love God, for money is their master. And more than this, they don't even love their neighbor because everything they do is about earning their money. And they will cheat and steal and cut corners in order to to gain more money. So let's not imitate the lover of money and the object of which they love. But there's something to be learned from the lover of money, and that is this. They are earnest. They are make good models for earnest lovers because their love of money is so strong that when it takes root in the heart, their entire life is dominated by their love for money. So consider this. The lover of money, consider how he works tirelessly just so he can have more money. The lover of money will work weekends if it means he gets paid overtime. He will work the holidays if it means he gets that extra pay. Lovers of money will expend all their energy just so they might have more money because money is their utmost prize. The lover of money is also industrious, always looking for new ways to make money, new investment opportunities, creative new sources of income because, again, they think about it constantly because money is their prize. And even when they are earning money, the lover of money is never at rest, not fully, because even still, when he's not earning money, he's thinking about ways that he might save his money. And so he'll cut the corners of others trying to save himself a buck. He might even take the cheaper option at his own expense, but they'll do whatever they can to keep their hands on their money because their money is their utmost prize. Lovers of money are earnest in their effort to obtain and keep money. Consider now, with that in mind, what it might look like for us to be earnest in our love for one another. Just as the lover of money is industrious for his money, so too we ought to work hard to love one another. Sacrifices will be made. Time will be given. Money will be spent. But these expenses should not keep us from loving one another if we are loving one another earnestly. Just as the lover of money is also creative in their financial endeavors so they might make more money in new ways, so too, if we're earnest about loving one another, we will think outside the box on ways in which we might love each other well. It might not all be found in the scriptures black and white there, but when it's our heart, when it's our joy, when we love one another we will find all kinds of ways to demonstrate that love. So consider, perhaps, what it might look like to love the widow well. What would it look like to love those who are sick? What would it look like to love those who are single? What would it look like to love the overwhelmed parent? And on and on and on you may go. The point is this. Every situation is going to look different from one another, but we should be earnest nonetheless to love one another. And just as the lover of money is always looking for a way to save money, so too those who love God's people will always be alert to ways in which they might love their fellow Christian. So brothers and sisters, let us love this way. Let us be earnest in our love for one another. Peter would have certainly experienced this. There's a a model of it that we see in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, we read this. Acts 4.32 
Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Uncommon, excuse me. Skipping ahead to verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and bought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What an amazing testimony of what earnest love does when the heart is made new by God that causes us to look at one another, not just trying to get more money for ourselves or more, more love for ourselves, but when we look at one another and we love others the way we love ourselves. The world does not know such a love. The world only knows how to love themselves and their own. But God calls us to a whole new kind of love. To love earnestly those who Christ has redeemed, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now up until this point, you might be tempted to think that love is merely a matter of what we do with our hands. The giving of money, the giving of time, and the like. Now, to be sure, love certainly does have an external demonstration. It is earnest. But love is far more than an external act. An external act of love is not the same as a sincere act of love. And we see this in the text that follows what we just read here in Acts 4. Right after this, in chapter 5, we read about a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. Listen to these, this story. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And, his, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Very similar to what everyone else was doing just previously, laying the goods at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained and sold... Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Ananias and Sapphira, they were generous, or so it seemed on the outside, they sold their property and gave a good portion of their money away to the church. And yet their love was not pure. They loved money. And they, more than this, also wanted the approval of others to see their good works and say, wow, look at Ananias and Sapphira. They're, they're righteous people. And yet their acts were not acts of love. Understand this. Love is more than just an external act. Love is a matter of the heart. Like Ananias and Sapphira, we can go through the motions of loving act, but it does not mean it is a true act of love that pleases God. Because loving one another goes further than what is done with our hands, with our time, with our money. This is why Paul was able to say, if I give all that away that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain Nothing. It is very well possible for us to be like Ananias and Sapphira, going through the giving away of goods, and it to have no bit of love whatsoever. 
And so Peter, he goes on further to describe the way that we're to love one another. In verse 22, he says we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. When it comes to the intentions of a person's heart, we ought to all be very slow to judge another person. Because we cannot know the heart of another person, not fully. But make no mistake about it, God knows your heart. He knows the secret purposes for why you did what you did. First Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks in the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so understand this morning, I'm not about to just tell you, hey, your, your heart is bad because I can't see your heart. But I am going to tell you this, you should examine your heart and I must examine my own lest what we're doing as we go through the motions of, of loving one another is really done in, in hypocrisy, just putting on a show like Ananias and Sapphira. And the scripture is not, it gives us plenty of examples, excuse me, the scriptures do of what it might look like to do things from an impure heart. Let me start by just calling fire on myself this morning and anyone else who might give himself to the ministry of the word Paul talks about those who preach the word not sincerely in Philippians 1. He says this, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. And so I have to examine myself. Is this what I'm doing this morning? Am I, am I competing with Tate, trying to, to outdo him somehow? Or anyone else for that matter? Or perhaps they're in 17 as well. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So am I, am I this morning, I have to examine my own heart. Am I loving you guys well, or am I doing this out of selfish ambition? I'll be the first to say that I am very suspicious of my own motives and everything that I do, including the very thing I'm doing right now, because the heart is deceitful above all things. There are countless other works of righteousness that can be done from an impure heart. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us many. He starts in chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Again, the righteous works would probably be loving works as we're about to see. And yet, it's without love because it really isn't about the, the loving work. It's actually about receiving glory from men. And so he talks about giving in verse 2. When you give to the needy, this loving work, he says, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they might be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And then with prayer, he continues. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they might be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And again, with fasting in verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. But their fasting might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, these are just brief examples, but the Pharisees, they did all kinds of works. They were zealous for all their works of righteousness. They were earnest in everything that they did. But they did not do it with pure hearts. And so Jesus said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. See their earnestness, even their spice cupboards. They're like, we're going we're gonna to see how much we should give away. And you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, 
justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out the gnats and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. What's he getting at there? He's saying, we need more than just an external modification of our behavior. It's far more than just giving your money away and your time away and doing the external loving things. What we need is a a new heart. We need to be made clean from the inside. Some of us do not know love in this kind of way. All we know is the the kind of love that, that brings flowers to our wives. But it is motivated by many other things other than love for your wife. Many of us do the very same things here in the church, even here and now. I wonder what motivates if you, if, if you lead a ministry in the church, what motivates you to lead the ministry that you lead in the church? Or what motivates you if, you if you participate in serving in one way, shape, or another, whether it's up on the platform or serving coffee or opening doors or in kids across the way or whatever else it might be, what motivates you to serve in the church? Or even as we sing, I mean, I know we're not all hand raisers, But if you do raise your hand, what makes you raise your hand? Or even the fact that you're here in church this morning, what motivated you to come to church? Is it so that people would see you and go, ah, he's a holy dude. We have all kinds of motives. Motives to do things. Kids, perhaps you're motivated to do your chores and to honor your father and mother and obey them and and speak nicely to them. But it's not because you love them. It's because you want something from them. We all do this because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What Peter's showing us here is that that the love that God calls us to have is more than just an earnest, zealous, outward work. The love that we're called to have has to first come from a pure heart. And the world does not know this kind of love. The only love the world knows is a a parasitic kind of love that exploits the benefits that they might receive from a relationship or any other kind of thing. And so they might bring you, you know, that that ingredient that you ask for, your neighbor. But, But really, the reason they're doing it might have any other kind of motive other than the love for the neighbor want to be well thought of perhaps or maybe they hope that that the favor will be returned one day to them in one way or another the world's love is parasitic we just love ourselves but brothers and sisters this must not be so for us we're called to a different kind of love we are called to love one another earnestly from a pure heart So to be sure, our love, it does have this external quality in that it is earnest. But our love is also internal in that it comes from a pure heart. And this is impossible for us to do if we did not have the help of our God. But this is why we love the gospel so much. The gospel is precious to us because the gospel empowers us to do that which God calls us to do. And so let's consider these two points. First, let's consider the gospel and the way that it purifies us to love one another. 
This is the preceding part of our text this morning, and this is probably the most difficult part of our text to understand. Look at verse 22, the first part of it now. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I want us to focus on that phrase, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. I'm about to do something that I would normally not do. In fact, I would say if any preacher normally does this, you should kind of have your antennas up and start to be a Berean and really test what he's saying because the word obedience to the truth doesn't exactly mean what we might be inclined to think it means just upon first reading it. Obedience to the truth does not merely mean external works because we know that external works like that which the Pharisees did will not clean your soul. So when he's saying, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, the obedience to the truth is not saying, okay, start taking the Ten Commandments, walk through them every day, make sure you do every one of them. That does not purify your soul. So we should ask, what does Peter mean? And I'm going to get some help from some guys that have more clout than I do. Let me quote three guys. First, Calvin. Listen to what Calvin said about this. He said, truth, that is the obedience to the truth, truth is to be taken for the rule which God prescribes to us in the gospel. That's Calvin. Here's another commentator. He said this, the phrase, by obedience to the truth, probably refers to, again, like Calvin, the truth of the gospel. Often in the New Testament, the gospel is designated as the truth. And again, now MacArthur, he said this about this passage. In this passage, Peter assumed but did not refer to faith which the New Testament so necessarily associates with salvation. But along with the purging from sin that comes through saving faith, he did refer to the obedience of the truth, an inherent element of the faith that saves. So Peter did not overlook faith in relation to salvation. He merely defined faith. Then MacArthur continues to say, clearly, in, clearly excuse me, obedience can be a New Testament synonym for faith. And so our text this morning says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And here's what all these guys are suggesting, that obedience to the truth is obedience to the gospel, namely the faith that we are called to have in Jesus Christ. Now, are we just playing with words here? Trying to make the scriptures say what we want it to say because it does not fit in our little rigid theological box? Am I, am I really suggesting that believe is a synonym for obedience? Because it's not, at least not the way we use it. Sure, faith, belief, it leads to obedience, but faith itself is not the same as obedience. And we need to be very clear about these distinct distinctions because when we just start to say, you need to, to do a bunch of things and that doing is your faith, well, you run into a lot of problems, don't you? So faith, belief, it is not a synonym with obedience. And yet this is what I'm suggesting is happening in this passage. So then does that mean we can just redefine words in scripture wherever we want, whenever we don't agree with the word that it says? Take the word predestination. I don't like that word, so I'm going to redefine it for myself. Talk about how God looks through the corridors of time and he chooses those who choose him. He didn't actually predestine them. Is that how we can treat the Bible now? No. Absolutely not. And I don't want you thinking that's what I'm doing either, or Calvin or the other guys for that matter. We should always submit ourselves to the word of God. 
After all, it is his word. This isn't just Peter we're talking about. This is God-breathed word. So what do we do with this hard text? Well, there's plenty of other cross-references I could point to, but I'm going to point to the one that I think helped me the best in understanding this. Look at John 3.36. says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Notice the word, the association excuse me, with the, the faith, the belief in Jesus Christ with that of eternal life. And now notice what comes after. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. And so we have two opposites here next to one another, eternal life and not seeing life. And, and there the, the correlating terms here is faith, belief in the Son, and a lack of obedience to the Son. And so from this text, we could see there is a very close association with faith and obedience, such that those who believe are marked by obedience, and those who do not obey don't obey inherently because they do not believe. And so while these terms are not synonymous, they are so closely related to one another that the scriptures oftentimes, like in our text today, will use them as synonyms. So what's the point of this then? Look at our text again in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Understand what our text, the command, it showed us that we need pure hearts. It's an internal purification. It's that which the, the Pharisees could not do. All the Pharisees could do was clean the outside. And so Jesus called them whitewashed tombs with every unclean thing on the inside of the tomb. We need more than clean outsides. We need a clean heart. And without God, our best efforts can only make us a pure clean but when we come to Jesus Christ and the obedience to the truth, that is namely faith and repentance, he cleanses us from the inside out. Understand the purification here that Peter has in mind goes far deeper than just forgiveness of sins. The purification that Peter has in mind is about transformation. We're talking about new hearts. We're talking about the old heart that once lived and worked for sinful pleasures is now replaced with a, a new heart that is formed by the gospel such that it wills and works for God's good pleasure. And when the heart works in this way to will and to work for God's good pleasure, look at the outworking of it. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. This is the very purpose for why he gives us these pure souls. So that we would have sincere brotherly love that comes from a pure heart. And so this morning, if you see yourself with an impure heart and you're all of a sudden saying, yeah, my motives are pretty bad. Don't just try to clean yourself up. But instead, come to Jesus, who is the truth, Come to him and obey these commands. Believe in him and repent. These are the works of obedience that will purify your soul. If you find yourself with an impure heart, you cry out to God with David. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from the inside out. 
The gospel, it does more than just purify us. Here's the next part that I want us to see. The gospel empowers us to love one another. So it purifies us, the gospel, but it empowers us as well. This is what we're called to, remember. We're called to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That word earnest, you remember, is the, it's the working hard at something. It's the zeal that drives us to do something. And verses 23 through 25 show us how the gospel empowers us to, to love in a new way that we never were able to do before we had Christ. Look at verses 22 through 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, it would be far too easy for us to miss the point of what Peter is using this passage here for. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40, and it would be easy for us to really miss what he's doing here. In fact, until I studied this text, I don't think I ever saw what Peter was doing. I always focused on the weakness of human flesh, how it is fleeting like grass and, and fading like flowers. Before, I always focused on the unchanging truth of God's word. And both are clearly demonstrated in this text. But I don't think this is Peter's main idea. That's not what he's using this text for. Peter doesn't seem to be using Isaiah here to try to even comfort these exiles like Isaiah did when he first was saying these words. Rather, Peter's use of Isaiah here is to remind these exiles of the empowering seed of the gospel that causes them and enables them to love the way God calls us to love. Notice how Isaiah 40, this quote here, is grounding that which came before, the command. Look again at the text. We're called to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Since... Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then he helps us further see the nature of the rebirth that we have had by helping us see the, the permanence of the seed of the word of God by quoting Isaiah. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So here he's, he's grounding the command that he has already given us. He's telling us why it is that we are to obey the command that we have been given. And it's because we've been born again. And having been born again, we are not like the old creatures that we were, perishable fading. But now we have this imperishable seed that has given us new power. And so if you don't see how this is quite grounding the, the command, look again at the command and think back to that word that we started with, the word earnest. Remember what this means, to love one another earnestly. To love earnestly means to be always constant, carried about this work 
to be constant in love for one another the way the miser is constant in his love for money. To be constant in love the way that we're called to love is all too uncommon in the world. And we can see this wherever you look. Just look at the the divorce rates in marriage. The wedding vows that once seemed so sincere turn out not to be sincere at all. And it's not just in marriages. Look everywhere where there is hatred and fighting and war. And what you will see is the peace and love that we so commonly say we have for one another is so easily broken. And yet we're called to love earnestly as Christians. And here he's showing us that in the way that we have been born again by this imperishable seed, that imperishable seed empowers us to do that which we are called to do, namely love earnestly. Because all flesh is like grass and all is glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Understand this, Christian. The love that you are to have for one another is different from the world in this. You have received this seed that is imperishing, that is remaining, that is abiding. And so you're called to love this way, earnestly, from a pure heart, because you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Once again, we see we are a new creation, made new first from the inside, having been made pure. And now because of the living and abiding word of God, we are made alive even on the outside such that our works of love are zealous. And this is all because of the word that has found its way into our hearts and making us new. And so we see again the the family likeness, the theme that we've seen already in this letter. As, As Peter has called us as obedient children to bear the likeness of God and holiness, now we see even once again the family likeness as this seed makes us alive. Now we are able to love one another the way Christ has loved us. We love, why? because he first loved us. So brothers and sisters, you can love the way God loved because you have been born again. All flesh is like grass and the glory, like the flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And he then clarifies what this word is. And this word is the good news. Literally, the word there is is the gospel that was preached to you. So what is this gospel that purifies and empowers the Christian to love the way Christ loved? It's this. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. The word that was preached to us is the good news of his purifying blood that cleanses us from the inside, that which the, the, the works of legalism cannot do, the work of Christ has done by transforming our hearts so that we can love with a pure heart. And then the gospel continues. He didn't just die. He rose again. And Christ's resurrection also raises us to newness of life so that we might love zealously, earnestly the way Christ has loved us. This is the good news that has been preached to us. And if we have been purified by our obedience to the truth that we have heard by believing in Jesus, 
then let us love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. For we do not love the way that we ought to love. So often our love is, is lazy. So often our, our, our supposed works of love is really love of self. And so Lord, would you forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, would you give us new hearts that would love the things that you love. Give us new hearts that would hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Lord, give us the power to do so. And as we do, Lord, may we, may we not do these things to try to gain approval from others, but Lord, may our love be a sacrifice to you. May it be a pleasing aroma to you. It is our spiritual worship. And so Lord, would you do this work in our hearts here and now, and so be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.